Welcome to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. I'm Tracy Ainsworth from the University of New South Wales. In this podcast series, we will talk to marine experts about the marine environments that we have right on our doorsteps and what we can do to help conserve and protect these blue spaces. Matt Blacker, thank you for joining us today on Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. For our listeners, Matt is a civil engineer who works in coastal engineering at the Water Research Laboratory at UNSW in Manly Vale. And in 2019, Matt was awarded an Endeavour Executive Leadership Award to continue the work that he's been building over the past decade, working to support communities in the Pacific Islands and helping them to navigate the challenges that are coming their way from changes to the ocean. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Matt, the Pacific Islands are amazing places. It's uh, pretty much everyone's dream to get there and experience them. Uh, And they're probably surprised to hear that the communities there in the islands are facing challenges and and they're going to be some of the first communities that are really going to have to adapt to climate change. What is your work finding about some of the most immediate issues for these islands and the communities of people that live on them? Yeah, okay. So our work is, uh, well, there's kind of two elements to that. A lot of our work is looking at the uh, the rapid onset hazards that these communities face, and that's from things like cyclone storm surge and that kind of work. So those ocean hazards that come with those extreme events, cyclones, tsunamis, that kind of thing. Um, but beyond that, there's these long time frame hazards through sea level rise and, and all the permutations that, that, that that brings for these communities. And, and so we're starting to see, you know, that there's some communities that already feel the effects of king tides and those kind of things more than they used to, uh, particularly during certain climate events. They're kind of low, lower, lower level impacts, but then you have these rapid kind of rapid onset events, we call them scientifically, that are things like a cyclone will come through and bring metres of storm surge to these communities. Yeah, exactly. So they're really close to these threats. And this is communities that have been in these locations for multiple generations. Yeah, that's right. Hundreds and hundreds of years, these communities have lived and moved around in the islands and uh, moved from one island to the other. And and I guess... um, looking at what the future might bring and, and trying to bring that awareness about what climate change might be, mean for some of these communities and understand those risks is, um, is, is an important part of the work we're doing. Um, some of the work you're doing is looking at helping t- with education and training for communities to be able to address these hazards that they're facing. How important is it that we take knowledge over there? Um, it's, it's really important that we take knowledge there, but it's it's probably more important to open up pathways for them to build their own knowledge than us take knowledge into there. So um, Pacific Islanders know their coastlines much better than what we do in many ways. And it's about trying to bring that local knowledge they hold and combine that with sort of scientific knowledge on coastal processes and and help them to build that expertise to manage their own challenges um, a little bit better as opposed to a program, say, where you put lots of aid into the countries and bring consultants and experts in. Um, I think it's really important to try and build the, the the local knowledge and expertise in those areas. So logistically, how how does engineering help to to do that to address those problems and use the local knowledge? Uh, so so there are local engineers working in in a lot of these countries, but they're generally they're quite general engineers, maybe civil engineer or or maybe you know not even a qualified civil engineer, but they'll be working on roads one day, coastal protection the next day, you know all these other things. 
um, that, that come across their plate. And it's about giving them the right kind of skills to be able to make better decisions when they are working in, in the coastal zone yeah. um, of these communities and, and also to be able to equip them with the tools they need to manage their risks from, from ocean hazards or coastal hazards. You talked about sea level rise and some of these issues happening quite quickly. In your opinion, how how urgent is the need to start to address those problems for places like the Pacific Islands and low-level communities? Oh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, <laughs> yeah. was, uh, is the level of urgency. Um, and there's probably two aspects to that. To it. There, there's We need work now to understand the the risks that these communities carry and to be able to allow them to adapt to those risks from things like storm surge. But beyond that, we also need better science and better planning to look for these communities in 50 years from now. What is it that these islands need to still be there and to be able to provide a, a platform and a basis for the communities to stay there? And at the moment, we're kind of looking at the impacts now and we're looking at these short-term impacts, but some of that long-term planning and, and, and in some cases, perhaps more drastic engineering measures or non-engineering measures or a combination need to happen. And these things take decades to plan and we need to be looking at those longer-term planning horizons now and starting to make those decisions now for different countries and, and uh, how, you know, what is their existen existential threat for different islands and we don't even really we can't really even evaluate that scientifically very well at the moment we're only just in the infancy of being able to do that compared with say an Australian or New Zealand coastline where we can understand with a, quite a good deal of accuracy coastal erosion hazards and storm surge hazards for some of these islands with reef type coastlines we're, we're really only just able to now make sensible predictions on storm surge levels and risks and things like that. Well that's um that's a bit confronting, particularly when I think we tend to think that these problems are solvable by science and engineering, that there's going to be this kind of one fix-all solution that will come along in time to address the problems. Um, I like that you mentioned kind of a combination of local knowledge, engineering and other measures because um, I think that really... Um, that really shows that it, there's not that one fix-all solution to some of these problems, particularly if we don't even understand how to predict them in these places. Uh, people love going to the Pacific Islands. It's kind of a bucket list dream place to go. So what can they do to help? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that the thing we can really all do the most is in our own backyard, in our own lives, you know, anything that, that helps to... Uh, slow down the pace that the climate will change and the extent to which the climate will change and, and the rates of climate change is really going to allow us to at least buy more time to, to better manage these issues. So doing things at home is probably one of the things we can can really do. And um, and when they visit, when people are visiting these places and getting involved with the communities, um, I'm just pretty listening to the locals who have had generation after generation living there and they're the generations that are facing these threats now, listening to them about what's happening, what they're seeing and what changes they're having to adapt to is probably um, becoming more and more important that people realise that these things are going on and they're not, they're not necessarily going away. What took you into the Pacific? Uh, that, that's a good question. I mean, I've, I've always had this infatuation with that. Uh, with, I guess, that, that whole exotic Pacific coastline sort of yeah. thing. Um, 
back in about, I mean, I'd been holidaying there early on in my, earlier on in my life, but then I think in around 2012, we had the opportunity to work in the Cook Islands on a, a hazard assessment there for, for some of their main town areas. And that kind of grew a, a relationship that's still going now. And I do a lot of my work there with that same team now. Um, so that was kind of an assessment looking predominantly at, at cyclone storm surge risk to their communities, uh, to, to their main town and community and, and infrastructure. And then uh, what would climate change mean for that risk profile yeah. for, for those communities? So that involved a lot of field work, um, a lot of meetings, a lot of talking to people about past cyclones and really trying to get my head into the space of of what the science looked like and because the science is quite young, trying to verify that against, you know, previous events that had been seen and try and understand whether we were kind of on the right mark or not. Um, so that's kind of how I got started. But really we walked away from that project having identified what a lot of the risks were and, and the risk profile is quite high there compared to, to what we, we're used to here. And I walked away from that project kind of feeling like, well, we've identified the problem but we haven't identified any solutions. Yeah. And so really it's um, all the solutions are long-term and we, we, we spent minimal of our time really guiding on what those solutions were. And these are saying that it's going to take a lot of engagement over many years. And, and I kind of realised that at the time. And so that's kind of led me down this path of going back there and continuing to work on projects with that, that same group of people. And uh, just at the moment, I'm, I'm spending time again working with that same team, trying to help them profile up a project to access climate finance in the space of, of uh, coastal infrastructure to reduce some of those risks. And, you know, we're now talking probably eight years after that initial piece of work and across multiple projects. But, you know, it's a sort of small beginnings. And then once you become involved with these kind of things, it's it's hard to just walk away from a problem, I think, like that. And, and when you realise that, there is a need for expertise and contribution yep. that you can make. So nice, yeah. and and getting finance into these places is is really important to helping adapt and put these solutions in place. Yeah, that that's right. I mean, getting finance in there is, is one part. Making sure the finance is well managed and well spent, and the outcomes are there is another part. Um, there's a lot of work gets done that you know, we need to make sure these projects and, and a lot of this work that's getting done um, achieves its goal, I guess, yeah. in, in what's delivered and, and that the learnings are shared across the region and and uh, helps to adapt. But definitely having um, the platform to enable access to these finances is one thing. Um, you know, for a lot of these countries, they've spent the last kind of five years, maybe 10 years, building that enabling environment to allow them to manage climate finance on a bigger scale and how to manage consultants and contracts and all of this kind of thing to even start tackling the problem themselves. So yeah. even because you know the problem is there doesn't mean you have the the tools and the kit to be able to manage it. And even if someone throws money at you, doesn't mean you can solve it. Uh, it's more complex than that. Yeah, that's a really good point. What What do you think is probably one of the most pressing things that, um, if if you could, that that you'd solve today, if you could? Realistically, I think you know, as an engineer and a scientist, I like to make decisions on data, and there's a real shortage of it in the <laughs> Pacific region. Good good data and 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 fundamental data that you really need to understand uh, how much of a problem we're in for these, yeah. some of these places, especially, the, you know, the more remote communities, there's even less data for those places. So 
Um, the basic things like, you know, I'll give you an example. In New South Wales, UNSW has a plane equipped with LIDAR to go and do a laser scan of our coastline multiple mm -hmm. times a year, sometimes before and after every big storm. Yeah. And we've got countries out in the Pacific that have never even seen that kind of equipment go past there once ever. And we've got no idea whether they're half a metre above sea level or five metres above sea level, but we know they're somewhere in between. And we're trying to understand whether that community is going to be there in 50 years time with another half a metre of sea level rise. And we just don't have the data to make those decisions, you know, at that kind of level. And so on the one hand, we've got very well-resourced and, uh, and well-refined coastal science for places like the east coast of Australia, and our neighbours out there have bugger all uh, data and science to base these decisions on. So having, um, having, I guess, a better supply of data or at least that baseline data would help with a lot of that decision-making, I would say, as an engineer now. Yeah. Yeah, that that's amazing. I mean, I had I had no idea that that was one of the problems even that was preventing yeah. doing anything about it, but like you say just even knowing how high above sea level is incredibly important if you're trying to deal with sea level rise. Um you're heading over hopefully this year COVID restrictions permitting. Uh what are what are you going to be doing there? Um, so, yeah, I'll be heading to Rarotonga, hopefully, uh, at some point soon. I was supposed to be there already, but we'll see how that goes. Um, when I do get there, so I'm really working on two things. One is this this whole idea of preparing a, a concept note or a project plan, if you like, for, uh, for a large infrastructure development across multiple of their islands in the coastal infrastructure space. So that's sort of looking at their... Um, their, their roads and their, their coastal protection assets, some of their buildings and how, how climate might impact on these things and, and working out really what their needs are to start with and, and what, you know, where there has been infrastructure planning done before, what are the infrastructure priorities and tying that into this sort of climate financing application. So really working with their climate change and infrastructure groups to help them understand those priorities and, and try and tap into that climate finance. So that's one, one part. The other aspect is really bringing together a lot of information that's been looked at over the past few decades on coastal processes and coastal management around their main island there and really bringing that into a shape that government decision makers can use that around for coastal planning and basic, um, basic decision making day to day. At the moment, there's been a lot of good scientific work done, but it's tied up in lots of reports and you know, not well documented and no one's really brought it all together and said, okay, you know, these areas are more vulnerable than these areas or, or what have you. So planning and, and development is a little bit ad hoc uh, and it certainly doesn't use the information to its full potential. So doing a lot of work on the ground and field work to really um, bring that information together, map out higher risk zones, lower risk zones and understand uh, for the purposes of building development and that kind of thing and help help them build their, their databases and tools to use that information. Well, nice. For students listening who have an interest in coastal science um, and the type of engineering that you do, on so on a day-to-day -day basis, you're working with like deploying instruments in the ocean, um, monitoring ocean movement and waves and things like that. You're working with uh, people and communities, and then all the way through to government and high-level decision makers. Uh, what kind of skills do you think you've learnt to get you to this point that um, that other you know young people might be who might be interested in, in following in your footsteps? What could they be thinking of 
of studying and skills that would be really important because that's a huge range of things that you do day to day. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge range. I guess it starts with, uh, for me at least, it started with the, the technical skills in sciences and maths and those kind of areas. Uh, and certainly going into university, they were the things that I relied on most heavily. Um, so, so having an interest in, in I guess, applying those kind of um, those kind of skills, sciences, um, physical sciences, but to the natural environment. Yeah. And that interest in being outside and wanting, you know, being practical, wanting to go and do field work and measurements on beaches and and uh, out in the water or on the water, having having that interest in those skills is kind of the baseline. That only takes you so far, I would say, and, and mm-hmm. you can be the best technical practitioner in your scientific field mm-hmm. you like, but if you can't communicate with a broad range of people and try and get some of this information across, then, then it limits you straight away. So... So I would say that over time, my communication skills are something that I've had to work on and grow and and learn from mistakes and learn how to, um, you know, talk with different groups and get get the, get the same information across, but to different people and understand different people's perspectives that they bring that might not be scientific, you know, yeah. but be able to to incorporate that in my work. Yeah, definitely. If you're trying to bring um, generations worth of local knowledge into what's an engineering infrastructure project to deal with climate change, I mean, that that takes a, a lot of connecting very obscure dots to, to be able to link that information together. Yeah, it's sometimes it's listening and understanding people's perspectives and being able to realise how other people view or understand a problem and then be able to talk to them from their perspective a little bit and help them to, to understand where you're coming from as well. Nice. Was this always on the cards for you? Was did you have a clear vision when you were young that you were going to be a, you know, coastal engineer in the Pacific Islands? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, no, no, definitely not. I, uh, you know, I guess I, I was interested in in science. You know, in high school, um, in physical sciences, and I've always been an outside kind of person, um, and a coastal kind of person. So. I guess I, I more went into engineering, let's say, into into civil engineering, and uh, probably I've just followed my feet more than anything in terms of in terms of going into coastal specifically. But these days I do a lot more work, I would say, in the environmental side of coastal engineering than uh, the civil engineering side of things. I, I don't spend a lot of time designing or, or building structures i've spent a lot more time looking at natural processes and trying to work out how they interact with the built environment and you know bring risks into the built environment and and what those risks are but yeah when you talk about risk do you mean things like risk of damage to them or loss or uh, is that what you're talking about when you when you talk about assessing risk yeah all of those things um it's about assessing it's both ways it's it's looking at the risk that say something like a big coastal storm could bring to development. So, you know, a month ago or a couple of months ago, I was up at Wamberal looking at the damage to the buildings there and evaluating Mm -hmm. um, kind of forensically how did we arrive at a situation where we had houses overhanging a massive erosion scarp on the beach and what were the causes of that principally from from that perspective. So looking at those risks to those buildings and and, and what was the causation of that. Um, A lot of the other ways is looking at the risks that development poses to the environment. So looking at things like uh, how can we better plan where we put our houses 
so that we don't then have to install coastal protection, knowing that our coastlines are changing and they're a dynamic space. What should setbacks be? What are sensible setbacks for buildings? Uh, and looking at legacy issues, you know, where, where a piece of coastal protection might have been built 20, 30, 50 years ago, and the impact that that's having on the environment and, and how can we manage those issues as well. So it's not just the environmental impacts on development, it's the impacts of development yeah. and the risk to the, to the environment from that. Uh, and, and I guess in, in many ways that's where coastal engineers kind of have a reputation for being people that build hard stuff on the beach, <laughs> which then ruins things. But in many ways coastal engineers spend a good deal of their time trying to look at how to minimise damage from hard stuff on the beach yeah. Uh, from from impacting the amenity of our beach and our environments and, and and doing a whole range of things. You know, I would say I'm a coastal engineer, but you can see the breadth of the kind of the work that I'm doing. is it, It's much more than just building hard stuff <laughs> on the beach. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's probably uh, that that balance between environment and, and building and engineering is, I, I'm guessing, becoming really, really important in a lot of the Pacific Islands as tourism increases and more and more people are going there and being able to hold all those people and minimise damage to a, a place that's at risk. Is that part of what you're doing when you're working in the Pacific? Um, yeah, absolutely. That, that's one element of it is um, looking at, at, at populations and communities and the impact of, as growth tourism is a big one, but it's not just tourism, it's um, centralisation of populations from outer islands to hub islands. Yep. So you really have some islands that are under increasing population stress that then, you know, stresses the environment around them, um, whether that's through tourism or, or their own domestic populations. But definitely looking at some of those issues and how that's impacting on their coastal environments through waste management and, and all sorts of challenges, uh, increased land clearing and, and different, you know, changes to land use in, in coastal catchments, all those issues is a part of what we're looking at, yeah. Is that part of the kind of decision process in climate adaptation as well, is that as islands or some places may become less habitable, it puts increased people population in other in other areas, is there a risk that if you don't adapt soon enough and um, and have good coastal protection in place, that it, it just amplifies the problem later on in other places? Yeah, there's a risk with that. There's definitely a, a risk of, of that kind of thing happening. Uh, you, you know, planned adaptation, especially if we're moving communities around, needs a, a lot of thought. And it's not just yeah. the physical thought, and it's not just the economics of it. There's a lot more important things um you know cultural yeah. thought processes to go through with those kind of decision making you know that by far the best outcome is to to leave communities yeah. where they've traditionally been and where they want to be if we can uh it's about working out how best to do that and in some cases it won't be able to happen but in many cases it will and I, i'd like to think that we can um, act quick enough and make the right decisions to be able to allow that but definitely moving populations around and, and having population concentration in some places is, is a stress to the environment of those those zones. And, and a lot of the, the islands, you know, depend on their coastal ecosystems for food. Uh, yeah. They depend on them for their tourism, which then provides income. And a whole bunch of things are tied together with coastal ecosystems on these Pacific islands. And it's a really important area to have to 
manage and manage well. Yeah. And it's multi-dimensions you have to manage. And and they're really kind of facing this ahead of us. It's not so much, like you said, us taking knowledge there, but it's also going to be us learning from how how they um, and how these places adapt and just make these kinds of these kinds of decisions to people who are interested in the work you do is there a way that they can can follow on and and keep an eye on on what you're doing and and how it's it's progressing Uh, not necessarily a a one specific channel i would say that our work is um is out there in different bits different ways We, we publish a lot of news articles and things and i'm out doing things onto the the water research labs news feed onto whether that's via Facebook or LinkedIn, but Facebook's probably the more publicly available one. So we'll have news articles on there and then, uh, you know, technical research I, I make available on ResearchGate or other platforms like that. But I, I don't have a Twitter fever. I'm, I'm updating <laughs> on my research is day-to-day. Yeah, but um, for people to keep an eye on the Water Research Lab at UNSW to find out what you're doing. It's amazing work. And I mean, you're getting so many awards for the work you're doing and it's, you're really making a difference um, through what you're doing. It's very, very applied. And I think it's be really inspiring for students to hear about, about what you've done in your career. Uh, something you mentioned in an earlier email to me was that at school, you got advice that maybe engineering might not be for you. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, of maths not necessarily being your strongest um, subject at the time. But I think particularly this year with COVID, it's really interesting thing for kids to hear that um, who you are in school isn't necessarily who you're always going to be. Um, if you could go back to that, that person who gave you that advice, um, <laughs> what would you say? <laughs> That's a good question. Um yeah, I think if you if you work hard enough and you're willing to try hard enough at something, then then uh, I think you can do almost anything. But I, I think more than that, there's uh, a lot more to something. It's probably fairly narrow-minded to think something like engineering is dependent so heavily on just maths and, and physics. And, and I would say there were people that were probably 10 times as capable as I were when we started first year of university in an engineering degree at, at maths and physics, but they lacked in other areas. And I, I just think that when you're looking at something that's a technical career path, there's a lot more dimensions to it than just that. And you might lack a little bit in some of the technical areas, like what I was when I finished high school, but but uh, give it time. And, and I think if you're doing something you're passionate about, then you'll be able to make your way through no problems. Yeah. Every time I talk to you, I love hearing how happy you are talking about what you do and how excited you are. And you just seem to absolutely love what you do. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. Don't forget to check out our website at events.unsw.edu.au where you'll find all the photographs from this podcast series featuring the beautiful places that we've been discussing and the organisms found in these blue spaces.